Genesis 2, 7 says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, for the way that you love us, the way that you hold us up, the way that you make us strong. And God, we do rest in those promises today, mindful again of the incredible gift of what it means to be made in your image, to know that you're present. And God, we want to be present before you as we turn to your word. We pray that it would once again be living and active, that it would pierce our hearts, our souls, and our minds, and give us a greater understanding of who you are and who we are in you. God, I pray that you would use your Holy Spirit to speak to each and every one of us in a way that only you can. We would hear your voice clearly and rest in these promises today and once again give you praise for all that you are and all that you're going to do. In the strong and precious name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, amen and amen. Well, I trust and hope that that time that we've spent together um, resting in these promises today would extend beyond just this most recent moment, but really into uh, the rest of the week. And you're able to truly uh, remember what it is that he has done for you by giving you his image, and you would be able to have that strong sense of inner worth and dignity that comes through um, really the gift of, he, of him making us in his image. Uh, it's a discussion we've been having for the last several weeks. We started this series on identity several weeks ago that is really designed to help us once again live courageously, which is our theme for the year, by knowing who we are and having a strong sense of self that allows us to live courageously. And so for the last several weeks, we've established that first and foremost, we have this desire to know who we are, these questions of existence and identity, because God has set eternity in our hearts, as it's outlined there in Ecclesiastes 3.11. We followed that discussion up the second week to say, here's how our culture tends to answer the question. Uh, Here's how we try to make sense of self and identity in existence by typically looking within. Uh, We've arrived at a place where we've created this separation between the physical and spiritual world, and as a result, we have now authorized the inner voice And we see it as the authority and kind of the source of truth and identity. Uh, But what the scripture tells us to do is that you find that identity not by looking within, but by looking beyond yourself. And so we return to Psalm 139 to talk about being fearfully and wonderfully made in his image. And then last week we finally got to Genesis 1. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, uh, where we see God say, let us make mankind in our image, in the image of God. He created them. And we were able to dive into some of the specifics of that passage, really focusing in on this idea that being made in the image of God is a gift that keeps us from thinking too highly of ourselves or too lowly of ourselves. It's this beautiful mixture. And we are then, by extension, called to be representatives, uh, reflections of his glory, of his majesty. So like that angled mirror that has its heart uh, turned towards heaven, towards the creator, we are able to receive that glory and majesty and then in turn fill the earth with it. And that's what we've been talking about. And we're really gonna continue to build upon that idea, but this week and the next several weeks, we're gonna talk about the implications of being made in the image of God. We're, we're still kind of camping out in chapter one, verses 26 and 27. Uh, We're not really looking at some of the surrounding context where you see the reference to being able to rule over the living creatures, nor are we going to spend much time today talking about male and female. Those are the following weeks. We're going to talk about our relationship with creation next week and how that influences our work and our purpose 
Uh, two weeks from now, we'll talk about relationships, and all of this will culminate in a discussion of how Jesus brings, to, brings this to fruition. Um, now, that being said, today we are going to introduce another verse that complements chapter 1, that gives us a greater understanding of what it means to be made in the image of God and the implications of how we are made in the image of God. And this is going to come from chapter 2. Chapter 2 is incredibly important to the following conversations that we're going to be covering these next few weeks. Verse 7 is a great verse that helps give some context and some additional color to what we looked at last week. And so I just read it over you, but I want you to see it on the screens. Chapter 2, verse 7, we get this initial description of what it was like to be made in God's image. Some new detail here. Here's how it's described in chapter 2, verse 7. It says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. All right, let's, let's dive into this um, and, and extract a few important points as we work through this today. Uh, the first is this statement that says, The Lord God formed. Okay, and so once again, we have this idea of God being the creator. All throughout chapter one, he created mankind in his image, but now we get a, a description of what that creative act looked like. God formed mankind. That word for formed is often also translated as shaped. And when it is the present participle, it is translated as potter. And this is where we get this common imagery that you see in the Old Testament that God's creative work in forming humanity is like a potter forming something out of clay. And you see that time and time again in the Old Testament. Let me read to you a few verses that illustrate this particular uh, common image that you find throughout the course of the Old Testament. Isaiah 64, 8 says, Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Isaiah 29, 16. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it? Did, you did not make me. Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? Jeremiah 18, 6. Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as the potter does, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. This is this common imagery that we find in God's creative act. We see it on display here in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7, that gives us this understanding that that is what God is doing. The, the word uh, really means to have artistic creativity, uh, to have this inventive quality that is taking place, a skilled uh, ability and something that involves strategic planning. Like th This is once again something that we introduced last week, that mankind is not an afterthought. Right? God has shaped us. He has formed us. He's using a certain skill, a certain ability to bring life uh, to, to creation, to humanity. It's this crowning moment of achievement. We are those who are shaped by God's hands. Now, this shaping that's taking place, what's interesting about chapter 2 is that verse 7 tells you that what he, we have been shaped out of is the dust of the ground. Now, that's a really interesting contra uh, contrast to what you see in chapter 1 with just this language of being made in the image of God. And part of what seems to be emphasized here, being emphasized here, is our creatureliness, right? That, that though we are made in the image of God, as it's described in chapter one, let there be no mistake, we are not some sort of heavenly being, right? We might be made in the image of God, but we are not God. And so chapter two is emphasizing you are still made from the dust of the ground. This is an emphasis on a certain vulnerability, a certain fragility. We are still just a creature. And there's some significant implications with that. 
Uh, one of the things that we see throughout the early pages of Genesis is this unique relationship that mankind has with the land. And this will be something we dive into in greater detail next week. But let me go ahead and introduce the idea of it here. Uh, that when you look at the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, okay, what the main story is of the Pentateuch is the story of the patriarchs. And by that I mean Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, like how God used these, these patriarchs to form his own people. And if there's kind of a climactic moment in that story, it's going to be the Exodus and then God establishing his covenant with his people there on Mount Sinai. And he gives them their laws. He says, you're going to be my people. And what is it that he promises, that he promises them? What is the inheritance that they're waiting for? They're going to be able to inherit the promised land. Right? It, it is a chief function of God's covenant with mankind. One of the primary ideas of the Pentateuch is this relationship between God, man, and the land. And so Genesis, the early pages of Genesis, build and introduce these themes. When you look at Genesis 1, so much of what is being created is God's preparation for the land that he can give and that can be inhabited by mankind, right? Let land be separated from the waters, an expanse in the air and the sky. Let's create vegetation, living creatures, the, the stars and the sun that can appoint certain times. All of this is a preparation for the land. And then you have mankind being made from the land who is then told to cultivate rule over, subdue the land, and then in the end will return to the land. Right? So as one scholar I read put it, uh, the land ultimately is man's cradle, his home, and his grave. Right? There's this intimate connection with the land, and we're going to build on that next week. But the other thing I want to emphasize from that is this idea that there is no real separation between that which is physical and spiritual. There's a distinction Right? Like you can see both things, but there, there's not a separation between the two. Right? Our physical and spiritual makeup is, is all in one kind of uh, display here in Genesis 2. Yes, dust of the ground, we are physical beings, but we are also made in the image of God where He breathes life into our lungs. There is this beautiful uh, depiction of it in creation that God's plan for redemption is not just for your soul, it's for your bodies. It's not just for some distant mythical place in the sky. It is for the land, a new heaven and a new earth, right? So you see this really powerful implication, God forming mankind from the dust of the ground and this emphasis on the creatureliness. But with that, the verse concludes that God breathed his breath into man's nostrils and made him a living being. And there's this beautiful uh, depiction once again of what it means to be made in God's image that we are not just some sort of godlike piece of earthly clay that he brings us to life with his breath. We are fully dependent upon him, right? We, we are dependent upon his image. He is the source of life. And this beautiful mixture comes all together in Genesis 1 and 2 that shows you that there is this inherent value of being made in God's image. There's this inherent fragility, right, vulnerability, being made from the dust of the ground, but it is his breath and our lungs that bring us to life. And, and this is this incredible display of God bringing his image to life through the creation of mankind. So we emphasize this, right? We, we create space this morning to rest in this promise so that we can have a greater understanding of the value and the, and the self-worth that we should all possess, an understanding of our own personal value and dignity. 
And the reason we want to emphasize that and the implication for that is that the more that we can recognize our own sense of self-worth, our own understanding of dignity that comes from being made in the image of God, the more then we are going to be able to recognize that same worth and that same dignity in others. Right? One of the significant implications of humanity being made in the image of God and that being a, a foundational aspect to our identity is the implication that it has for human dignity as a whole and our understanding of human rights, right? And so here's the question for us this morning. What happens to a society, or how does a society anchor its understanding of dignity in others, its understanding of human rights, apart from the image of God? How do we base human dignity and worth and human rights in something other than the image of God. What does that look like? And that, that's the journey I want to take us on for a brief moment. And to do so, this will hopefully accentuate why it's so remarkable uh, for us to embrace. And so to, to re- really begin the conversation of human rights, I'm, I'm going to dive in this into greater detail at Theology Matters on Wednesday. Okay, so I'm going to hit the cliff notes this morning, but we'll, we'll dive deeper into the origins of that on Wednesday night. If you're available, feel free to come back. But a very quick overview of this is that most students of civil rights or human rights are going to trace the origins back to ancient Greece. And what you find in in these ancient uh, Greece uh, kind of Roman philosophies and understanding is this idea of human dignity and worth. However, the way it is typically described is through the idea of natural law, right? And so natural law was more or less there was an order to the way that the world existed and we were supposed to bring ourselves into harmony with the natural law. But what was different is that when those things were discussed, it was not really about personable rights as it was certain duties and obligations, responsibilities that you had in accordance to nature. And so that was a very different understanding of how the world works. Let me accentuate some of this for you by reading to you a couple of quotes from Aristotle and Plato. So Aristotle says this, for that some should rule and others be ruled is a thing not only necessary, but expedient. From the hour of our birth, some are marked out for subjection, others for rule. So ancient uh, Greek theology, or philosophy, because it was driven by natural law, said some people by birth are, are born to rule and others are born to be ruled. Right? That was where this all first began. Plato builds on the idea as well. He says, nature herself intimates that it is just for the better to have more than the worse, the more powerful than the weaker. And in many ways she shows among men as well as among animals and indeed among whole cities and races that justice consists in the superior ruling over and having more than the inferior. So the idea wasn't really about human rights. There is a natural order. And those that were born to rule could rule, and those that were born to serve or be slaves had to serve and be slaved. And this is how society functioned, and everything was meant to be brought into harmony with this. And that was the initial idea. It wasn't really about personal rights. And that was, that was kind of woven through so many formations of societies. And so when you look throughout the course of human history, what you see is a reaction against those that were entrusted with power who didn't rule appropriately. Right, that abused and mistreated those that they were governing. 
And so there was this constant battle about figuring out this natural law and, and how do these rules and these rights really coexist. But, but the idea of personable human rights didn't really work themselves and entrench themselves into our culture and our way of thinking until really the Second World War, right? There were still traces of natural law, even in our own nation's history that we'll dive into again on Wednesday night. But, but really what you see is that after uh, the Nazi regime takes a hold and has this idea that there was a natural order, that some were superior and others were inferior, and we saw the level of the atrocities that took place in the Second World War. You had the United Nations uh, formed, and then in 1948, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was made. And that's when we start using the language that we're pretty familiar with today. And, and that's what begins to give it momentum. And, and that really resonates with our country because our country tends to be pretty obsessed with the idea of human rights, do we not? I mean, it is in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Right Now, why are we so obsessed with this idea of human rights in our culture? Is it just because of these poetic words offered by Thomas Jefferson? I would offer, offer at least three other critical components that have shaped our understanding and our thinking towards human rights and why it's so critical to us as a country. Again, I'll hit these quickly. Uh, the first would be uh, just the spirit of exploration that led to the formation of our society. Uh, it, yes, people came from Europe and settled here with a spirit of discovery and exploration, but many of them were fleeing their own oppression. They were pursuing their own level of religious liberty or whatever it was, and so they came here settling a new land in hopes for protection of their personable, personal rights. Now, what's interesting is that once we began to settle here, we completely neglected the rights of the original inhabitants, evidence of the still thinking of natural law, right? That those that were already here, they were either here to be conquered or to conquer us, right? But there's a natural, so, so the stronger was able to subject them, move them, uh, relocate them, and so now we had all this land, which leads to number Two, the formation of our country was driven by an expansive amount of land. And so what happens is you settle in these first a few villages and cities, and if you don't find yourself at home, let's say you disagree with how things are unfolding, you don't like the religious practices, you don't like the governmental practices, you know what you can do? You can move. Start a new town. Start a new village. And we did. Over and over and over again, all the way west. Think of how different that is than the European, the European experience that was landlocked. You had nowhere to go. If it didn't work out for you, you had to exist in it. But here, there was an expansion so that you could move and resettle wherever you wanted, which kind of conditioned within us that I have the ability to claim and, to, and orchestrate an environment that speaks to my rights and my wants that still exists today. We still have this idea that we should be able to have what we want and our environment should somewhat agree with our personal view of rights. Right? So that was the second factor, the expansive land. The third is the institution of slavery. Right? So there's no doubt that slavery has had a, a, a tremendous impact on our nation's identity. I mean, we literally fought a war and spilled blood over the idea of rights. Who gets to establish what they are and who doesn't? Right? And, and that has shaped our cultural ethos and our identity to the point that even today we are still cognizant of 
the, the need to identify, define rights for whatever group may or may not be oppressed, not just within our borders, but beyond it. And we see ourselves as those who need to go identify, define, and protect the rights of others. But even in our own nation's history, even today, we see that there is a problem with it, right? It's a human history, not just specific to our nation, but many nations of those who have been in power, who have created systems of oppression and conflict and and those that would reject the rights of others. Why is this the case? Why do we struggle with it so much? Part of it is that when you detach an understanding of human dignity and worth and anything other than the image of God, it runs into some major problems. Here, Here are a few. Okay, the first question is, who gets to define basic human rights? So Jefferson says, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But why does he get to say that? Why is it just those three things? Why is it not also property, like John Locke would say? Or why wouldn't we also include the right to work or the right to healthcare? Who gets to define what these basic rights are? Well, there's there's no one that can ultimately establish that sort of uh, credibility and authority, but everyone tries to, especially when they assume power, which then leads to the second problem. What happens if your definition of basic human rights is different than someone else's? Right? What if there's not an agreement there? What happens? Well, the inevitability is tremendous amounts of conflict. Right? Whether that's the right to uh, what you can and can't read in a library, or what can and can't be taught in a school, or something much more significant about Russia's right to invade Ukraine, or Ukraine's right to defend itself. I mean, whatever it is, when you disagree with someone else's rights, what happens? It's conflict. It's war. It's, dis, it's, it's disharmony, it's disunity, it's chaos, right, because of this tension, which leads to the third problem, right? The other problem when you don't have it anchored in anything else is you begin to say, well, are rights truly universal, right? Or are they not regional? Like, does this really get to apply to everyone or shouldn't we trust that certain uh, communities and certain regions have the ability to define what's right for them? Like, doesn't that... That tribe in some different culture halfway across the world, don't they have the right to determine how they want to govern themselves and function? Or if we encounter them and we see a massive amount of oppression towards women, where they burn widows at the stake whenever their husbands die, these are practices that happen in other cultures, do we then get to step in and say, no, that's wrong, because it's universal? Or is it local? There's no good answer to these questions, which is why human history is filled with people arguing over abusing and demonstrating all these different ideas of power, right? And this this neglect of human rights because it has no anchor. And so what ends up happening is, again, uh, we struggle with the idea because when you detach human rights from the image of God, you fall into that trap of either thinking too highly of yourself or too lowly of yourself. So we introduced Watkin last week, Christopher Watkin, who's written uh, this, this great work. I'm gonna reference him numerous times. And he highlights again the challenges that we have when we try to get our mind wrapped around human rights and anything other than the image of God. Uh, he's, I'm gonna read you a quote, and he quotes two people within the quote. So just get ready, take notes. Uh, he says, unbiblical anthropologies. Okay, so by that he means the study of mankind in, in any way that we try to define mankind apart from the scripture, apart from the Bible. Unbiblical anthropologies tend to fall into two types of error when they try to account for the human being. 
The first is that they fail to attain the biblical mixture of human greatness and human loneliness. They either overemphasize exaltation or humiliation. Michael Allen Gillespie <clears throat> describes how these two tendencies grew together in the 18th century. Gillespie says, one strain of enlightenment came to believe that humans were gods. The other strain saw them as beasts or even mere matter in motion, driven by desire and sheer self-interest. He quotes Chesterton. He says, Chesterton lampoons this contradiction with panache in a famous and oft-quoted passage. A Russian pessimist will denounce a policeman for killing a peasant and then prove by the highest philosophical principles that the peasant ought to have killed himself. The man of this school goes first to a political meeting where he complains that savages are treated as if they were beasts, and then he takes his hat and umbrella and goes to a scientific meeting where he proves that they practically are beasts. So the extreme is either humans are gods and, and there's this problem of superiority, we think too highly of ourselves, or humans are nothing, right? They're inferior, they're not worthy of any sort of protection, worthy of any, any rights. So in one meeting, one setting, I can say, no, we should protect these savages, and the next I can prove that these savages really don't have any rights whatsoever. We have no anchor. And we see this time and time again. When we think too highly of ourselves, the concept of human rights gives its way towards a superior way of thinking where we look down on other people for a variety of different reasons and issues. We look down on people because of their economic standing. They're too poor. Well, they must be poor because they're not educated enough, they're not smart enough, they haven't worked hard, they're addicted to drugs, and so I don't really need to pay attention to them or worry about them. I can just drive right by them when I see them on the street. We think less of them. Or we think of ourselves as too superior because of somebody's skin color. Right, and history's filled with people that have looked down on others because they just look different had different race, different ethnicity. We look down on people because of gender, historically for women, right? Uh, world over systems of patriarchy that look down on women because they're property or because they're just less than or a weaker vessel, right? We are superior. You do this based on culture. Well, they don't speak the same language. They don't have the same customs. They don't have the same rituals. And so we see them as less than. And we build whole systems to try to protect our own sense of superiority. Right? Don't come across our borders. Don't come across and take our jobs. Don't come and take all these things that give us a sense of power and stability and we see others as less than. We think that we're superior. Or the other side of the ditch is we think too lowly of ourselves. Right? We, we live in a world where all of a sudden we convince ourselves that we have no value, we have no worth, we have no dignity, we have no significance, and that creates a sense of depression, loneliness, anxiety, and we act out in desperation because of all these insecurities. If no one else sees me as valuable, then I don't see myself as valuable as either. And we withdraw and we find a very small measure of meaning and significance in our lives. And when we find ourselves on that side of the ditch of the road, we become desperate, and that makes us prone to idolization. Idolization of anyone or anything that gives us any shred of value or significance. We may put this on our spouse, Right? Here's the one person that said they love me, so, so this is where I get all my worth. This is where I get all my significance. And we crush our spouse with those sorts of expectations that they can't live up to. We put it in our jobs, in our careers. This is where I get meaning and significance. This is the only way that I find value. And then all of a sudden we realize it's not that fulfilling. We do it towards uh, political leader, leaders or causes and all these different things that we think will give us a sense of significance and meaning and power. And in the end, it all feels less and empty. We have no anchor for our understanding of self-worth and dignity in others. And so this becomes this constant problem 
when we try to have an understanding of human worth and dignity detached from the image of God. And so here's what typically uh, culture's answer has been for this, because here's the reality. We all recognize, we talked about this last week, we all recognize that there's something different about humanity, right? So what is it, though? And people have sought so many times to identify what is it specifically that makes humanity different, right? What gives them that different quality? And when you detach it from the image of God, you try to come up with some sort of potential, some sort of capability that makes humans different. So you'll, you'll reference logic, reason, sympathy, the ability to define yourself, all these different things. We covered that list last week. And really when you boil it all down, what people are doing is they're trying to say that humanity has a certain potential or a certain capacity that the rest of creation doesn't. And, and what uh, Watkin calls this line of thinking is, is the idea of a host property, right? That we have something that nothing else does. Here's the problem with that way of thinking. Let me read to you this quote. The problem with that way of thinking is that inevitably, if you define human worth and dignity by something that you possess, then that means inevitably you or someone else can either lose it or not possess enough of it. So let's go with reason or rationality, that this is what separates us and gives us human dignity and worth. Well, what about infants? What about the unborn? What about the old who now suffer an illness like Alzheimer's? and are now irrational and can't reason? What about those with severe mental disabilities? What about someone who has a stroke and can no longer speak, can no longer really articulate? Are they now less of a human? See, this is the problem when we anchor human worth in something other than the image of God and in capacities and potential. Here's how Watkins says it. He says, any account that pins human distinctiveness on a host property is hostage to the argument that some human beings simply do not possess the property in question or not possess enough of it and therefore have no right to the dignity or protection afforded by being human. He continues with this anchoring again in Genesis 1. He says, Genesis 1 explicitly does not name what it is about human beings that makes us in the image of God and repeatedly emphasizes that the Imago Dei is a feature of creation, not an achievement. In this way, it gives humanity a status that is not dependent upon the performance or expression of this or that capacity and that is not cause for boasting or thinking humanity in some prideful way superior to other creatures. This gift nature of the image of God provides a powerful basis for human dignity, equality, and human rights. So let me give you a couple of examples to, to bring some clarity to this. Uh, by looking at the early church. Because where, where the early church really captured credibility on this was not so much thinking and rhetoric and, and language of philosophy, it was more in how they lived. But when you start asking the idea of church's impact on human rights, you kind of have to look at it in a couple different perspectives and lenses. The first is to recognize that when you start talking about human rights, you're really talking about um, the impact of people in power. Because rights have never really been defined outside of people with some form of power or who claimed that power. And for the first three to 400 years, the church had zero power, right? It wasn't until Constantine and that, that change that you began to see certain strains of thought within Christendom that could be uh, offered up in these halls of power, so to speak. And so in the fourth century, let's take slavery. Again, you heard Aristotle, you heard Plato, like slavery was an accepted form and just kind of a natural order of, 
of living. And it was actually Gregory of Nyssa um, that was one of the first ancient people, the church father, who spoke out against the institution of slavery. One of his quotes is he references the sheer arrogance of slave ownership. And, and that critique of slavery was unparalleled in ancient history. And so the first voice critiquing that practice was from the church. Now, prior to that, what, what Gregory of Nyssa is doing is he's standing upon 300 years of how the church lived. And the early church lived with this understanding of human worth and human dignity that was radically different than the culture it was surrounded by. There's this article uh, on the Gospel Coalition that is actually just a book review of, of two different books, really, that were written by Larry Hortado, and I don't remember the titles exactly. One of them was, Why Does Anyone Become a Christian in the First 300 Years? Uh, the second one was, Destroyer of the Gods, the Distinctive Qualities of the Church in the Roman Culture, something along those lines. And here's the premise that Hortado is, is putting out there in his books, is you look at Christianity in those first 300 years in the church, it's, it's a small group that was the subject and the object of intense persecution, had no power, no political influence. It refused to worship the gods of the day. Uh, it did not worship the emperor. And so how in the world did this small sect and this small group get any sort of conversions, any sort of attraction and movement? And ultimately, through the course of these books, he highlights five distinctive qualities of the early church, and every single one of them accentuates the church's ability to see human dignity in the other. All right, so the first one uh, that he mentions is that the church became multi-ethnic. This is really remarkable for that point in time because in ancient Roman culture, religion was just, you were born into it, right? It was assigned to you, essentially, at birth, and there was really this concept of, of a religion that could bring in other people from different cultures and societies and, and backgrounds was novel. It had never really been done before to that extent. And all of a sudden, because of teachings like Ephesians 2, that the dividing wall of hostility had been broken and people had been brought as brother and sister under the one name of Jesus Christ, what you began to see was the church that could bring people in from all different backgrounds, whether you were Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. You were all one in Jesus Christ. And that was radical, unbelievably different, driven by this inherent understanding that all people, regardless of their cultural or gender background, had worth and dignity. The second distinctive quality that he highlights was the church's ability and capacity forgiveness, for forgiveness and reconciliation. Here they were, this malign group, this oppressed group, this persecuted group, and how did they respond to their oppressors but through the offerings and the words of reconciliation and forgiveness, right? They did not see that it was their responsibility or place to revenge or to avenge these wrongs that were against them because everyone had human worth and dignity, even their enemies. And so they fostered forgiveness and reconciliation. The third distinctive quality was uh, their focus on, on sexual purity. Uh, sexuality and sexual relationships at that point in Roman culture were, were very different, right? There were expectations <clears throat> on women, <clears throat> in particular married women, that they would abstain for any sort of uh, intimacy with anybody else except their husband. Men were not held to the same standard, right? Men 
were able to, to have any sort of intimate relationship, uh, not just with the women that they were married to, but to slaves and uh, prostitutes and so many other people in society. And it was just assumed that this was because of the natural impulses and craving and this lower view of women. And the church comes along and says, no, that's not what those relationships are for at all. In fact, sexual intimacy is designed for a husband and a wife to give themselves fully to one another. Right, and, and that you actually are gonna promote purity. You're gonna promote a different sort of ethos and ethic in that, and you're actually going to see women not just as some property, but someone worthy of dignity and value. The early church was one of the greatest advocates for women. That was the third one. The fourth was sanctity of life. Now, a lot of times when we talk about sanctity of life in our context, we think about all the debate and discussion centering around abortion. And while abortion, uh, was present at, in ancient Rome. It was not nearly as prevalent as it is today. Um, it was not as common, and a big reason for that is because it was very dangerous. But what you did have, what was, what was a practice that was known as infant exposure. And what would happen more commonly was that for those that didn't want children, once the child was born, they would throw the child on the garbage heap, left to die or to be taken into the slave trade. The church saw that and took the children in, cared for them, loved them as their own, and it was radically different. The fifth and final one was how the church treated the poor and the suffering. Right? They gave more to those who were in poverty. They gave freely, freely and lovingly and willingly and generously, and they cared for the suffering. It is well documented that in these urban plagues, the church stayed behind to care for the sick and dying. They didn't run out of the city, even if it cost them their own life. Because every single person was worthy of dignity and value. The early church was radically different and was the first real demonstration of human rights that others carry. And why did they demonstrate this, y'all? Two reasons. I'll close with this the image of God and the example of Christ. Right? They had this understanding. It was, it was anchored, not in how the power would define what was right or wrong, not by some natural law or self-evident truths. It was anchored in the understanding that every single human being was made in the image of God and had inherent value and worth. They were creatures made from the dust, fragile, vulnerable, worthy of being uh, recipients of service and protection. They understood what it meant to be made in the image of God. And ultimately, they followed the example of Christ. Right? What Jesus has shown us through his life, through his ministry, through his words, through everything that he did for us was that every single one of us has value. You are worth it. And he dedicated his life in selfless and sacrificial service to demonstrate the inherent dignity and worth of the other. And because he was their example, the early church modeled their life after him. And Paul puts it together in such beautiful language in Philippians chapter 2 that captures the spirit of Christ and how we are to treat one another. Here's what he says in chapter 2. 
verse 5. He says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He didn't think too highly of himself. You hear that? Even though he was the nature of God, not just made in the image of God, Jesus was the nature of God, and even he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't think too highly of himself. So what did he do? Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He served others. He understood the fragility of being made from dust of the ground and he gave his life even to the point of obedient death on a cross. And in so doing, paved the way and showed us the example how to see worth not just in ourselves but in everyone else. And because of Jesus' example, because he was fully God and fully man and he lived in such a way, he becomes the fixture of our salvation. He becomes the Messiah of all. Paul continues, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus becomes the primary example for the church. He was their example in the first hundred years. He is our example today. Are you following that example? Do you see the inherent value that you carry, that Jesus has affirmed in you? Do you see it in everyone around you, regardless of how you may or may not agree or think or or not think alike? Do you see every single person is worthy of such dignity, that the example of Jesus restores those who are broken, that we are these fragile creatures made from the dust of the ground. But each and every one of us has value because we're made in his image and it is his breath in our lungs. And when we know that, then we give our lives to serve others and to pour out our praise to the one who has shown us how. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we thank you for the example that Jesus has set for us. And we ask, God, that you would truly give us the opportunity to serve and to worship him in spirit and in truth today. God, we acknowledge that so many times we have lost a sense of what it means to see the dignity and worth in others. Too often times we fall victim to the disputes of the day and we get into conflict, we get into disagreements, God. And I pray that you would once again Guard us as your children. Guard us as your church from falling into those temptations and those tendencies. Let us live radically different from the culture around us. Let us live with such a servanthood and such a mindset that allows us to see the dignity in every single heart, soul, and mind and to embody your love and your compassion to those that so desperately need it. Help us, God, to to live in such a way that our lives are a declaration of praise to who you are and for following the example that you've given us through Christ that shows us how to love not just you but to love others. We thank you, Father, for all that you are and all that you do, and we pray this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen.